That was a nice Ben Affleck look at the camera moment there from Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. This episode of Sincast is brought to you by HelloFresh. Visit HelloFresh.com and use promo code SINCAST30 to save $30 off your first week of deliveries. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined as always by the voice of CinemaSins, Jeremy Scott. Welcome. And from Music Video Sins, Barrett Share. Hello, everyone. And uh, today we're taking a break from the Mount Rushmore for, uh, I don't know, an undetermined amount of time, I guess. Mm hmm. Uh, but we're going to try to d- define the decade. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about movies from the 70s. In a world of pure imagination. You're going to need a bigger boat. You talking to me? I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Run away! Run away! This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. But we're going to see, how are they different from movies that we see today? So we're going to get into the 70s quite a bit. We're going to try to define that decade a Mm -hmm. little bit. But we're really like, how does it define us now? Where where are we now with movies since the 70s? Yeah, because it's hugely influential. Right. So, you know, we'll just try to get into that and uh, have a a nice discussion about it. It could go all over the place for all I know. It probably will. And it probably will. <laughs> that was a nice Ben Affleck look at the camera moment there. From Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you think defines the decade of the 1970s? I like the impetus of this. Uh, it was brought on, just a little background, it was brought on by a question from a listener, actually. You know, they were talking about, like, how do you define the 90s? How do you define the 80s? Obviously, they're known for certain styles, and they're known for, obviously, certain landmark movies. And even the last two decades. And now that we've got, you know, a lot of uh, perspective on the 70s being where we are right now, I think it makes sense to just say, like, you know, what immediately springs to mind? And to me, I mean, just to kind of start it off, it's more of like gritty, neorealistic stuff and the auteur stuff that springs to mind when I think about 70s. I was going to say grime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was it, that was my first like word association. Uh-huh. 70s movies, dirty. Yeah. yeah. Like physically, not like sexually. Yeah. Right. No, well, it's totally both. grimy cuz the, you know, you think about a movie like Taxi Driver where Robert De Niro is driving around that old New York City, that that one that people who've lived there their whole lives wish would come back for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, we need more porno theaters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> back when Times Square was not the what they now sort of just like derisively call the Disneyfication of Times Square where like there's all these big huge companies and everything that have come in and like made everything like welcome to our world right. <laughs> and, did you see any of that old stuff when you were there like or was it all disneyfied no it was all disneyfied because the 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 person res- that is always considered responsible for changing all that was Ru- rudy giuliani mm-hmm. so it was around uh i guess the late 90s or whatever when all that stuff started to kind of go away so you right. don't have porn theaters anymore it's mostly like you know hershey's and you have mtv mtv <laughs> and uh you know a lot of broadway plays and and you know 
billboards and like you know it's very touristy yeah it's extremely touristy but back in the taxi driver days he's driving around and there's hookers on the sidewalk yep. and there's porno theaters and there's like just like you want to get into some sin man yeah <laughs> fucking taxi driver is is your ticket and uh and that new york and that's why like a lot of times like we've had these sins in the past where people are in like modern day new york <laughs> And like they walk past something like, you know, it's it's like 1970s. I always say 1976 <laughs> New York because that's the taxi driver. You know, <laughs> you know um, because, you know, when you walk through New York now, you're not going to see a lot of that. No, you don't see that out in the open yeah. and everything. But they make it still try to seem like New York's this place where those people <laughs> like, you know, hovering in the shadows. Um, like in the Dark Tower, you can practice your gunplay. Yeah. In an abandoned. Yes, you can. <laughs> warehouse downtown. Yeah. I may need to watch this movie just so I can catch the references. Oh, it's bad. All right. So, so back to the 70s. Then. Yeah. So why, you know, obviously when we started the uh, the best years since we've been alive, Jeremy was born in 1975. So we started in 1975. But obviously that, you know, neglected a lot of early earlier 70s movies, mm-hmm. uh, including something like The Godfather yeah. and Godfather 2. Yeah. Um, are we going to go ahead and say that Godfather is the best movie of the decade? I think yeah. Mm, let's keep talking. Mm-hmm. I think it is. I don't think I've I've thought about you know I mean the Godfather always comes up even without decade specific. That's true. Yeah, it's usually like, people it will say it's the best one of all time. One of the best of all time. Right. So to say that it's you know it can't possibly well I don't know there are some contenders obviously in there. I just don't think there's anything that's going to beat Godfather. But. Um, the thing that's cool about the Godfather, and I was actually just watching this the other day, mm-hmm. um, that whole opening wedding scene—that is something you will never see again in movies. You'll never. Why, see, why do you say that? You never see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, movies these days, even though uh, some of them are way over long and and whatever, don't spend a whole lot of time in one area that doesn't advance the story. Um, now there are some things that advance the story. Obviously it's a lot of the stuff with Brando and, you know, them coming to the Godfather and he, you learn this character through all these people who keep coming in and asking for favors and everything. Um, but there's so many little side things they'll go to and show some of the ceremony and they'll show the one guy who's upset that the guy's taking pictures. You know, there's all these little things that they add in there that, and you see, you know, you see Sonny, he's like, he's like, you know, banging this girl in the, <laughs> you know, yeah. in a private room somewhere and like just, uh, and, uh, the, and it just goes around introducing you to all the characters and what they're all about and everything. Movies these days really just want to like, I want to, I want to get away from this. I want to go to the next scene right now. Yeah. And, Can and, you imagine if the Godfather started off with a narration? Yeah, I know. <laughs> And it would this year the, yeah. if it came out in in 2017, you'd have Michael Corleone coming on there and going, "Back in the day when I was a young uh, war hero, you know, <laughs> I shot down many planes in World War II, whatever the fuck he did." Um, but it's amazing. It's character exposition perfectly mm-hmm. without being overt about it. You understand how powerful and how intimidating. Vito is. Mm-hmm. You understand what a hothead Sonny is. You understand where Michael's coming from, without overt stuff besides him talking about you know Kay and and kind of giving that backstory about the band leader. Um, you even see Robert Duvall when he goes up to get Sonny, 
and you know he's knocking on the door. He knows that he's fucking this this bridesmaid yeah. or whatever. He's got this little smile on his face as yeah. he comes down to like a boys will like, be boys yeah, type of oh, thing. Oh, that Sonny. Even though he just saw his wife, Sonny's wife, like two seconds. There's yeah. a point later on where Sonny tells that same girl, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, what's he say? So I'm going to knock you out or something oh, next time yeah. or something like yeah. that. And she's like, oh, I can't wait, right. you know, and all that. But, um, but yeah, that scene in particular is just something, if you watch it, you know you're in a different era mm-hmm. immediately. You know that this is something that is, and now The Godfather is elevated above most movies, so it's not like this is an example of every movie that came out. But you see that in the 70s a lot, where they're just taking their time with things. They're not they're not really in a rush to get to that next scene they want to take their time and say, look, this is what the whole scene is. You're going to sit there and watch it and enjoy it. We're going to let, we're just going to let that marinate for a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's the way those movies are. You know, they don't do that whole, they don't do that anymore. in movie. And I think there's a, you know, there's probably something that happened over time. Star Wars, where, <laughs> um, where, uh, where people were like, we want that. We want that story to move. We want it to just keep going like star Wars. And again, like anything that's imitated and like, uh, is hugely influential. They take those, those little elements right. out of the movie. And then they say, let's put it in all movies. Like that's going to make it, make the movies better somehow, mm-hmm. even though it, star Wars is a singular achievement for right. everything. It's a different, you know you can't just emulate star wars by saying well let's move, make the story move fast yeah. you can't do that i don't know i was actually just thinking while you were saying that that even taxi driver doesn't seem like it moves very fast no it doesn't and that's you know that's lost these days you don't have too many filmmakers well ironically enough sofia coppola is one of them right. uh whose films definitely mm-hmm. take their time and don't rush through anything but i think back here in the 70s where so many greats are basically <clears throat> coming out you know having their coming out party um you know there's the grooves weren't worn so deep yet in storytelling you know where okay we have this kind of story pour out the liquid and it immediately goes in the same groove and hits the same beats that we're used to now we've got 60 more years of of that shit to get entrenched and that's why so many movies feel copy paste whether it's a romantic comedy (laughs) or a horror film is that the, the grooves have been worn too deep, but back when they were making Godfather and Taxi Driver, there were either no grooves for some of those genres, or they were just just faint enough that people like Scorsese or Coppola could could veer off and find their own groove path and mm-hmm. not have to not have to follow some blueprint. And you're touching on something that, you know, and we've already talked about the griminess of these seventies movies. That's another thing is in, in sort of related to that is there were there was no fear in being dark or having a, a, a like a, a bad ending or, you know, not a happy ending. Yeah, those were celebrated. Yeah, those were celebrated. And so movies like The French Connection <laughs> and Taxi Driver, and even though Taxi Driver has that weird like it's happy type of ending (laughs) it's not really it's not really a happy ending but it kind of has that false sense of a happy ending nashville um a lot of these movies and uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest all these movies that are now now all (laughs) these movies just didn't give a fuck about you being happy at the end Mm -hmm. of it they wanted to tell a story and that story you know served as you know this is how it ends. We don't want it to just like come out of nowhere with something to make this happy and make you feel good. Uh, it was sort of a, it was a strong contrast to six or seven decades prior 
of movies that just did just tried to make everything happy. I mean, right. some some maybe here and there were subversive enough to have like a, a sad ending. or whatever. Hitchcock. Yeah, Hitchcock, yeah. which is, uh, you know, of course, that's where his influence starts really coming in is yeah. in the 70s, even though he himself was not making great movies. There's some pretty decent 70s Hitchcock movies. What did he make? In the, do you know off the top of your head? Uh, Frenzy is one. Uh, family Plot. Frenzy's okay. Frenzy's huh. pretty good. Uh, but yeah, this whole thing, like all a lot of these filmmakers were were sort of being ushered in with the French New Wave and all that. They like really, en- you know, really enjoyed what they were doing and said, let's try to put this in American cinema. And uh, so then you started seeing darker stories. And the, the MPAA, the, fun- the, the forming of the MPAA also helped with that because now you could make movies that were oh well children aren't allowed yeah. to be in it so or whatever and of course there's a lot of things about the mpaa but um it, it at least allowed it was for, a guideline yeah it yeah. at least allowed for uh darker stories to be told and they didn't have to go through that haze code stuff anymore yeah a lot of these uh, some of my favorite movies of all time probably the biggest concentration of my favorite movies of all time are from the 70s hmm. because he got Close Encounters, you've got Jaws, obviously, mm-hmm. Star Wars starting out, um, and then you know, the two Godfathers, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Taxi Driver, Alien. Like, There's just this, this crazy amount of concentration within this decade that I could point to and say, like, I would watch these movies. It's not one of those things where you're like, I recognize that something like The Revenant. I'm not going to watch The Revenant over and over and over again. I, I enjoyed seeing it. It's a cinematic achievement, but it's just not something that I'm just going to throw on mm-hmm. and just like enjoy. Mm-hmm. With a lot of these movies from the 70s, like I'm literally, I want to watch these things right away. Mm-hmm. Like even some bizarre shit like the Clockwork Orange. Yeah. And, you know, things, shit got weird in the 70s. Yeah. Well, that's because they're, fo- I mean, it's basically the 50s smoked some grass in the 60s and started doing some other drugs and we ended up with the 70s yeah. <laughs> because we had almost two decades of where almost i mean almost almost all the movies were light bright breezy this is where you had your concentration of like you know beach party movies that oh, yeah. we parody today and stuff like that it was and then we get into the 70s and it's like fucking gangsters and guns and dirty streets and prostitutes and when was Dog Day Afternoon? Was that the seventies? Yeah, it was yeah. yeah. So yeah, he was a gay man in that character in mm-hmm. the in the mid seventies. That's shocking to me that they made that movie in that era. Yeah, and I don't know if there was fallout at the box office from that fact or what have. I don't you, think there was. But it feels actually. pretty groundbreaking to me. I feel like even a, a film today would struggle with a certain amount of the population if it had a you know had a bank robber and a heist movie who just happened to be gay. I know. Yeah, that's the layering effect of this of of these types of movies. Where that's just a minor little detail in this amazing heist, you know, gone wrong thing right. where, you know, the, the, the hostages turn to the side of the, the, the hostage, uh, whatever, the, the hostage, hostage taker. Taker. There yeah. Go. I mean, it's kind of like the negotiator. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you laugh, but the negotiator is really entertaining. Oh, yeah, man. I love it. But yeah, it's ridiculous. Who uh, do you think would kind of own this decade? I think Francis Ford Coppola has a a good shot at like being the person that you think of most associated with with 70s. Yeah, he's his his filmography in the 70s is is pretty untouchable. You have two Godfathers. You have the conversation. and You have Apocalypse Now. Yeah. 
uh, all four of those movies have some sort of legendary status in some sort in some way. Conversation still doesn't get quite the love it should. Right. It's another movie, by the way, that has dark ending, dark, dark themes all the way through it. Yeah. It doesn't rush itself at all. Does not rush itself at all. But that's what makes that movie so suspenseful. And it's what sort of has been lost in movies. I know that we're we're just like uh, just fawning over the 70s. Yeah. But that's the reason why there's a reason why this decade is considered the last great studio decade decade of studio movies Mm -hmm. because um, they the studios let the directors do what they wanted. Basically, they found talented people and said, here, do this and everything. We were talking about Dog Day Afternoon a minute ago. Uh, I don't know if it was a huge hit or not, but uh that's the thing about movies from the 70s they still weren't worried about this huge box office draw uh movies had time to like uh, get an audience they didn't have to worry about three new movies coming out the next next week um one of the things that happened with star wars was that they started started to get pretty accurate about whether or not that movie was a flop or not after star wars came out like Mm -hmm. or or became a little bit too quick on the trigger to say that something's a flop after the opening weekend. Cause star Wars did such gangbusters. They, you know, on movies that came out and didn't do star Wars business suddenly were not huge. Duh. They weren't, they, they didn't give them the same chance or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, that, that doesn't really take effect until like 1993 where that's where movies really start, you know, start exiting theaters quicker uh-huh. and everything. Like before that, you you know, you have movies that would last a whole, you know, you know, a whole year sometimes. Right. But around that 93, which is when I started working in movie theaters, big huge movies would be gone, you know, in 3 or 4 months and uh and but now but been in the 70s, you come out with a movie and it could play seven or eight months to pick up an audience you yeah know? And, and people uh, would still go see it yeah well, exactly. we were talking last week when we were done about titanic and how it never it didn't have like a big 200 million opening you know it basically had its opening of i don't know 20 30 million something like yeah. that and then for like three goddamn months it was 30 or 40 million 30 or 40 million 30 or 40 million 20 or 30 million 30 or 40 million and it just that bucked all expectations at that by that point by the time t- titanic came out which is what four years after ninety three? Yeah, uh, we, we're already to the point where a movie that does have legs and can find an audience for three months is the, is the exception to the rule. Yeah, and and Titanic, uh, even Titanic at our theater uh, lasted five months, which is nothing compared to what come what stuff did in the seventies sure. and everything. Titanic, you're right. That movie made twenty million every week. It seemed like, and then I thought it was just about to die down, and Valentine's Day hit. Yeah. Suddenly, everybody's on day. Everybody, night, yeah. it slammed again <laughs> that weekend. Um, and so, yeah, that it's it's one of those rarities when a movie can last that long. Now they're sort of like uh, studios are really trying to get that movie on home video as fast as they can. Um, but even the home video market now is getting getting really i went to best buy the other day yeah they they used to have three huge aisles of blu-rays at this one that i went that i used to go to and then i started noticing one was gone yeah and then another one was gone and now it's relegated to these tiny little did they de-alphabetize displays 
The uh, best yeah, buy near me it doesn't is have any real alphabetized. Are you it serious? It doesn't have any real sections anymore. Well, yeah, my the one at my house has or near my house has sections like horror or action. Nothing is alphabetized. Oh, that's they just throw it on. They're, they're just well, they're trying to make me spend more time there, hunting, right. pecking for the movie that I want. It's really goddamn annoying. That's why I just started buying from Amazon. Fuck yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, Best Buy still will have that like new release, you know, thing that's up. That That's where I get the stuff most of the time, where I get the stuff. <laughs> um, but so, so yeah, the 70s, uh, definitely marked by by grime by by dark in by dark themes and mm-hmm. dark and you know, like there's hardly anything even because and and then you have vietnam going on at the time you have a lot of vietnam war movies that yep. decided to, to go very dark deer hunter apocalypse now yep. um like you had family dramas that were about divorce like kramer versus kramer uh there wasn't very many like just uplift i think that's why star wars also hit some sort of like you know different kind of gear because by 77 people were getting a lot of this darkness and finally something yeah. you know came out that was uplifting and everything you mentioned claw uh claws you mentioned jaws and close encounters of the third kind uh-huh. uh those are two movies by the way that still take their time oh yeah, yeah. and they're oh, yeah and they're considered, and Jaws is always lumped in with Star Wars as this, as these, as this influential to how what movies would be made, how movies would be made. I think Jaws is more influential to how movies were maybe marketed or like how they're perceived as box office successes or failures. But Jaws is nothing like Star Wars as far as a story is told. Oh yeah, Jaws. No. Jaws today, if you made Jaws. It, it there would be none of that preamble i mean there would be a lot more blood it would be more like deep blue sea right yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um, a lot more cgi right and it's just uh they wouldn't take the time to like uh build these characters up you wouldn't have- they definitely wouldn't have the scene in the you know below deck with uh, with quentin uh and the other two oh guys. yeah um i mean because those there's so many distinct parts i don't know how long jaws is but it's pretty long or it feels pretty long because you've got the opening and then you've got the setup of Roy Scheider's character and then you've got the closing of the beach controversy and everything. And it takes forever. I don't mean that pejoratively. I think it's great. It takes a, it's time to even get to that last bit where they're hunting the shark, which is a whole separate movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when you do have that scene where they're talking about their old war wounds and things like that, that's how you get the payoff. That's how you get... Quint dying is just like holy shit how can they kill that character yeah. he's been like this this touchstone of this movie so far yeah so. exactly that's a that something that has been completely lost for the most part in in modern day movies yeah and movies frankly that even even through the 80s 90s and so on it's just gotten progressively worse but they forget about that they forget about these scenes how how they build things up mm-hmm. they want to take the essences of these movies and make them into this with the essence of it but they don't ever think about the whole the whole movie is the equation it's not just these little details that they they think made jaws a success yeah yeah so jaws essence yes yeah you need the essence of jaws the other thing i was going to ask you guys about like i Everything was subversive. We've talked about like how you know endings and things like that. Even the comedy was subver- subversive. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned in a previous podcast how Blazing Saddles couldn't be made. Oh yeah, today. Hell no. 
And there's some there's some weird shit happening in the 70s. You got Blazing Saddles, another Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got even Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's yeah. a weird fucking movie. Holy Grail. Holy Grail and Life of Brian, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I wonder, is Life of Brian something that you can make these days? No. Um, no. No, right? Nope. nope. There's there's no chance. Nope. Because there the the problem is is that and they and they still to this day don't, by the way, get get the overall gist of that movie. Yeah. And the you know, the the point is is that is that people are stupid and that they they you know they they're the ones who are worshiping this guy who's not jesus yeah you know <laughs> that's the point of the movie yeah. and and that all the stuff you know because we've mentioned this before there's a part where they actually show jesus in the sermon on right. the Mount. yeah and and there's people who are listening to him and everything and 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 it's completely different from what's happening in the in the actual movie though where they've big nose yeah exactly (laughs) where they've decided this guy is jesus um uh so yeah i think if you came out with one with this today it would be just like what you have with last temptation of christ Mm -hmm. and all that where i mean that movie didn't get a chance either i mean it isn't 1987 that didn't get a chance right so uh anything that's that has this you know I don't know. It seems like heresy or whatever. That you know, they wouldn't come out with that movie. No. But people still watch those, like those specifically, Blazing Saddles and and Life of Brian. People still watch them today for the first time and enjoy them. They do. Is it just because it's it's like a time capsule, basically, and you could get away with more at that point? I think that might be some of it. Yeah, yeah I think I it mean, might be. I think you subconsciously, you know, realize that you're watching, especially something. You know, from the seventies, you can't help yeah, it. Like when I was a really little kid, I was a snobby motherfucker. Like if I if I saw a TV show or a movie on, and I could tell the clothes and the cars were from the seventies, I was like, "Fuck that old shit!" <laughs> I'm gonna go watch Back to the Future again. <laughs> I, uh, luckily, I grew out of that. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, no, um, it was also a big decade. I think for, I think I'm noticing a trend here: bucking the system and not giving a shit. But yeah. like horror had a huge mm-hmm. decade because mm-hmm. you had shit like Halloween. And Alien, and The Exorcist, and The Omen. Yeah. And, I mean, now in the 80s, horror really takes a dive off a cliff hard. And, yes. And uh, plonks at the bottom. Again, by the way, uh, taking the, the stuff from the 70s and just making it into, the, this is what you like, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. What, that's exactly the, the what we saw in the 80s was... In Halloween, which is a movie that a horror movie that takes its time, you don't see that ever. No, mm-hmm. horror movie that takes its time has a lot of suspense to it and all that. Uh, people took Halloween and said, "Oh, you like the the masked killer with the murders and everything, right? <laughs> we will give you all that and more. Uh, just continue. We'll just give that to you in every scene now. Just lots of deaths. Yes, and want deaths. And no boobs. suspense. Yes. No nothing that makes any sense. Yeah, boobs. Yeah, yeah lots of boobs. Um, it's it's kind of crazy looking at the movies in the eighties, man. It's like seventies vomit. Yeah." <laughs> because you see all these movies that are trying to be those movies in the 70s and they think they know what it is do you you guys understand what i'm saying yes yeah Yeah. totally like like they they don't look at the whole picture they just look at you know check boxes of what things people liked and they don't really delve into what made those check boxes so great um yeah you can make an argument that 70s was peak horror yeah, actually, because in the '60s you had 
Psycho, obviously, and you had a few of the, you know, Hitchcock things. I don't remember, I mean, Suspiria came out in, in the 70s, The Omen, all mm-hmm. the stuff that Jeremy mentioned. Uh, Straw Dogs is uh, yeah. kind of horror. Uh, it, it, exactly what you're saying. Like, the stuff from this decade is what has been allowing horror to skate uh, mo- mainstream horror. The modern horror guys would probably argue with this, but mainstream horror has been skating off of this peak for a long time. Mm-hmm. Only just now is it really kind of getting back its swagger, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the last, I don't know, three or four years, it feels like there have been a good handful, even if I didn't like all of them, obviously the witch struck people in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, it follows. And then this year we had Get Out and It, and uh, I think there's a little bit of a resurgence. I just, you know, are we going to do the same thing? Are we going to learn the wrong lessons all over again? We need red balloons and sewers. That's yeah. exactly what made it work. <laughs> yeah. Clowns. Yeah. yeah. If I mean, you put a clown in there, it's going to be scary. This is exactly what I mentioned about the American Horror Story. It's a bunch of clowns with freaky masks. Well, That's not what freaks you out. And I'm already worried about, like, because, okay, Stranger Things, I have not seen the show. Mm-hmm. I have heard enough from people like you two and others to know that I will love it when I watch it. But between that and it and then the 80s era Bumblebee Transformers spinoff, I feel like there's, we're a little 80s nostalgic out. Mm-hmm. Like I think they're legitimately studios were looking at Stranger Things and went, we got to do more 80s nostalgia. Absolutely. And you know, just, why do they always learn the wrong lessons? Why? <laughs> I don't know, because it makes... Yeah, I mean, you're, you're missing the point of why these things are successful, critically acclaimed, make money. And it, I don't know. I don't know. I think what you're seeing, the reason why you're seeing uh, these interesting movies that are starting to come out now, though, is you have a you have a wider distribution net than you used to. Um, used to be you had to make a movie and you had to hope to get it into theaters or at least get it on, into a home video store of some sort. Now you can you've got Netflix, you've got Hulu, you've got Amazon Prime, you've got uh, still you still have you know movie theaters and you still have all the old media or whatever um now i think you have companies who are deciding you know what we can't let every awesome idea walk out of our doors now we have to compete with these amazons and and netflixes and everything mm-hmm. and uh we have to we have to uh, sort of up our game or else they're going to take all the good stuff and we're going to be left with you know uh, according to Jim, yeah. And- <laughs> well, the, this is your, what you're talking about has already happened on network television, not necessarily with the Hollywood studios and film, but like whenever I read about a new show with an actor I like or a premise I like, as soon as I find out it's on CBS, I'm like, fuck it, I'm, I don't mm-hmm. care, yeah. I'm not watching that, yeah, because at this point they're already only getting what after Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu turn you down. Then you go to TNT, TBS, or AMC, and after they turn you down, you end up at ABC, NBC, or CBS. Which is a total reversal. Yeah, total reversal. I remember when Fox technically started being called the fourth network, Mm -hmm. because it it was an upstart, basically. It came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, And the networks had all the power back then, and the cable cable companies didn't even produce their own shows. They didn't even try. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, I don't know what exactly, was it AMC that really sort of broke that through after that? I think so. Breaking Bad. I don't really think they were the first to come out with original programming, but they, certainly they, you could see that it could be done well. FX uh, did the yeah, Shield FX was a de- and was Rescue a- Me, and those were both critically acclaimed. And those, I think, both started before Breaking Bad. But I think 
Breaking Bad is the one that that's the reason we now have stuff like the first season of True Detective or Fargo, the TV show. Mm -hmm. That was Breaking Bad was the one that said we can do cinematic short run television miniseries, basically you know, film quality work here on this cable network. And they're going to leave us alone. Yeah, and don't yeah. forget, Mad Men was running right around the same time. AMC Mad, was Mad Men just came out just before Breaking Bad, and The Walking Dead yeah. right around there too. I mean, they hit like the perfect trifecta. Whoever was running AMC at that point is a fucking. I genius. saw a headline the other day that said Walking Ra Walking Dead ratings are down, but it doesn't matter. It's such a juggernaut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. It's like the NFL, basically. Like, yeah, you know, people tune in regardless. Oh, Walking Dead is on. All right. Well, and, so. and uh, you know, so. This is this decade is the seventies is kind of like what we have going on, you know, maybe at the beginnings of it now, and thank God it mm -hmm. needs to it needs to happen. But in the seventies studios were not they were not owned by these huge corporations. Remember, uh in in this day and age, Universal's owned by Comcast. Uh, uh, Columbia Pictures and TriStar is owned by Sony. Mm -hmm. Um you have uh Warner Brothers, which is Time Warner. Yeah um all these companies did and Disney paramount is, Disney. is owned by cbs yeah paramount yeah so i mean you have all these these studios that aren't really being run by movie people they're being run by the the cash that's above them and they look at movie studios as basically a cash drain they don't look at it as we need to come out with these great movies or anything like that they just that's why you see you know five transformers movies and that's why you yep. see another fast and the furious coming well, because out. this is what they're doing they're doing math they're doing economics really because when i worked for well both regal uh it was a smaller document at regal but at kroger a monthly what they call the pnl the profit and loss statement for the store was massive it's like 30 pages of numbers numbers that i would have a monthly call where i have to answer for these numbers. why is the ebitda down 1.2 percent um the ebitda okay. Yeah, earnings before interest, tax, and amortization. <laughs> I can't believe I remembered that. Drop some fucking knowledge, I can't man. believe I remembered that. Um, and, you know, that my boss would be sitting in a room looking at numbers. Now, he would maybe once a month come into my store, meet my people, see my customers, talk to me face-to-face, -face, but the majority of the judgment on how good my store was being run was being done by looking at numbers mm -hmm. in an office far away. And they're just doing the same thing now with films. Oh, Transformers mm -hmm. 4 made, yes, just like Walking Dead. It dipped off from Transformers 3, but it still made $800 million. So <laughs> we're not going to stop now. Let's yeah, make yeah. 12 more. The Emoji Movie made $212 exactly. million. Exactly. So, uh, and, you yeah. know, I can't fault that. It's very much like the Peyton Manning leaving the Colts. <laughs> like, I felt bad. I love Peyton Manning. I kept following after that. But that was the right decision for the Colts to make at that point. You didn't know if his neck was fragile or not. It was a business decision, but it, it sucked. But it was a... So I understand why they're doing that. They have board members they have to, you know, report back to who want to know why the profits aren't up. Uh, it's just, you know, the art is slowly being squeezed out into the sides. And it's going to basically just be independence versus studio trash here pretty soon. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say that... Um, in the 70s i mean there was still there were still studios owned by big corporations back in the 70s i think golf plus western or whatever owned uh either paramount or i don't know when that happened i don't know when this like wave of corporations started coming in and buying all the studios but just just now just know that you know it's not usually paramount it's the company behind right. the company that's making all the decisions and everything well well the first thing 
that came to my mind, which I'm glad I didn't say, because grimy and all the crime and stuff we talked about for the last hour is way better than this. Mm -hmm. But one of the first things I do think about when I think about 70s movies is John Travolta's career. Because mm -hmm. uh -huh. he's in Carrie, and yeah. then you have Grease and Saturday Night Fever right at the end of the decade. Because mm -hmm. there was still plenty of, I mean, disco was still very popular oh, yeah. in the mid to late 70s. And I think movies represented that way outside just Saturday Night Fever. But this is where John Travolta began. No, know? that's a good point. I was actually thinking about all the music movies that came out in this decade because he had Rocky Horror Picture Show, Willy Wonka, Grease, Saturday Night Fever. Um, even because Grease obviously was set in a different era. So it was a little bit lighter, even though it had some pretty heavy themes in it too. I'll tell you what, you know? I thought that movie was shot in the fifties until I was like 18, just cause I'm dumb. Well, no, I mean, it, it's got a perfect look for it, you know? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, but yeah, but even Saturday night fever as being keeping in the theme of this decade is it's remembered for the dance, mm -hmm. but it's a gritty fucking movie yeah. about yeah. this yeah, dude like, uh, in New York that uh, you know is trying to get by, and he's getting into conflicts, and he's getting into fights and things like that, and the dance floor is where he can basically escape. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, it, it's it's so much fun to dive into these things that, you, that are known for something. Yeah. Uh, something I just brought up, Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka is known as this fantastical thing about a chocolate factory. There's some weird shit in that thing yeah. where not only the boat ride, but uh, Gene Wilder's whole character, um, the fact that kids are pretty much dying, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the whole weird setup that they had at the beginning where every all the grandparents are in one room and like sleeping together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know why those Ravagers and uh, Guardians 2 have to sleep together, like, in a whole mess of people. Yeah, man. It's no. like, our ship has many moon rooms, but we only need one for Jeremy, sleeping. <laughs> they got super blackout drunk during that party, man, and they all fell on the on the floor together. It's what happens. Exactly. You, you don't talk about yes. what happens in the Ravager bridge. What, when... ha what happens on a Ravager <laughs> ship stays in the Ravager <laughs> ship. Well, that baby group run wild. <laughs> uh, one thing that is a trickle down effect from the 70s is the disaster movie yep uh i was just watching uh the towering inferno a few weeks ago it's good stuff what a fucking cast this another movie that's had. not trying to rush anything that no. building is on fire for like two and a half straight hours <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it makes perfect sense uh well, poseidon adventures in the 70s right yep poseidon adventure um, all the airport, airport 77 yep. with jack lemon all the best disaster movies for the most part are in the 70s yeah and everything that's you know tried to emulate them since you know you, you've got your Devlin and um what's his name Emmerich, Emmerich, Emmerich yeah, yeah. you know does that like Independence Day style disaster or 2012 or Geostorm well the 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 thing about those movies is is just that they are so hooked on the spectacle of seeing a city getting destroyed yeah. that there isn't anything else after that it's right. it's really just what what is what are the latest special effects today yeah. let's let's do that on this movie and 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 um whereas you know these movies that you're talking about in the 70s they actually put some characters in there i'm sure back in the 70s they were considered almost like emmerich movies or Probably. something because they're because of the whatever but like uh but you look back on it now it you know, there's such a difference between those disaster movies and what we see now, which everything is just focused on the destruction. Well, it's kind of similar to the Die Hard issue, right? Mm -hmm. Where, like, Airport 77, Towering Inferno, and Poseidon Adventure are all confined spaces. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas like Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones is the <laughs> entire city of Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, and so they sort of lost what made because like I think I think Airport 77, the plane goes down in the ocean and it's at the floor of the ocean mm-hmm. underwater. And they've got to try and get people out into the surface. Oh, really? Before they die. I'm pretty sure that's the plot. It's one of those movies. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of blend in. We, we lose all not airplane airplane, which is parodying these yeah. movies, right. stays in that kind of confined location. But uh, but yeah, good call on the disaster movies. Yeah. All the good ones are from the 70s. Towering Inferno is exactly that. It's not focused on the destruction. It's not focused necessarily on the disaster even though a fuck ton of people die oh yeah oh yeah movie it's like 200 people die but then you had these powerful leads it's interesting i wonder how it was received when it came out in the 70s because paul newman steve mcqueen fred astaire and a million other people that i'm forgetting right now like these are heavy hitters these are well-respected uh you know actors and they're acting like they've got characters and they've got time to introduce them and things like that and it's thrilling each time, like, it's not everybody gets off or nobody gets off. There's, right. like, little pockets that escape via elevators. Ones that go uh, on the stairs. There's some that slide off into the uh, well, and there's into the second building. Well, there's segment with the, with the window where they're trying to, like, brace the window. But, like, it's almost like the Lost World cliff scene where shit just keeps going wrong, yeah. like, five times <laughs> in a row. And, the, and I think, ultimately, the window breaks uh-huh. and wind starts pouring in. Um, I really like the Towering Inferno. I do too. It's a good movie. I actually like the uh, the Poseidon Adventure too. J- Gene Hackman was in Poseidon Adventure, yep. wasn't he? Ernest Borgnine. Hackman has a case for owning this decade, by the way, too. He was in fucking Young Frankenstein. I forgot he was in Young Frankenstein. Yep. Well, he has, a, he has a is a cameo. And didn't yeah, we? Yeah. Didn't you say Coppola wrote Patton? Yes, because mm. Patton came out in the seventies. Well, too. actually, mm. no, Coppola wrote it, not Coppola. Sorry, (laughs) I buy his wine. I can say his name however the fuck I want. Um, So yeah, I think it's probably still going to be Coppola. Oh, as who owns the the decade? Yeah, 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 for sure. I don't think there. I mean, you you have uh, you have people like Friedkin and uh, and Spielberg and Hal Ashby and a lot of these people who try to sort of like aim for that uh, own you know ownership of the decade. But Coppola really has just more just i don't know just more movies. this was his decade and, yeah. and that was his basically his last decade too yeah that's it i mean uh, he, he, he was he was a huge flash we were talking about pacino and de niro when we were talking about the actors mount rushmore pacino has a very good case of of being kind of the the uh the the main person of this decade between the godfathers and dog day afternoon and serpico yep. and shit like that um but he was closely associated with with coppola you know and and then, as we talked about with the uh, the actors Mount Rushmore, De Niro and Pacino in particular went way downhill in the eighties, and it took until the nineties to really like build them back up yep. again. Uh, so there's something about this decade that I, you know, I think one of the things I wrote down about like almost like the the tropes or or the downfall of this whole thing is that you ever you ever been drunk or like been on drugs where like you hit the peak. And everything is awesome. You're like fucking Billy Crudup in Almost Famous. Yeah. Right? I'm on drugs. Yeah. And then you start coming down and everything's just like, oh, shit. Yeah. And I think that was the early 80s was that, oh, shit yeah. moment. But everybody's high as fuck in the 70s. By the way, I don't. I hope you guys don't mind. I'm going to read this from Pauline Kael in, uh, when she reviewed the, uh, the Towering Inferno. Hmm? It goes kind of where I thought it would would go. Pauline uh-huh. Kael was was a uh, one of those greatest critics that yeah. you know that ever that has ever critiqued. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, so 
In the new disaster blockbuster, The Towering Inferno, each scene of a person horribly in flames is presented as a feat for our delectation. The picture practically stops for us to say, yummy, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think she liked it. These incendiary deaths, plus the falls from high up in the 138th floor tallest skyscraper in the world are, in fact, the film's only feats. The plot and characters being retreads from the producer Irwin Allen's earlier Poseidon adventure. What was left out of this time was the hokey hokey fun. So she she liked Poseidon adventure. Okay. When a picture has any kind of entertainment in it, viewers don't care about credibility, but when it isn't entertaining, we do. And when a turkey bores us and insults our intelligence for close to three hours, it shouldn't preen itself on its own morality. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is, why, is this is why Pauline Kael is the fucking best, man. She is right. This movie is fucking two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, like, like it's insane. Inferno knocks off some 200 people as realistic as it, but realistically as it possibly can. That's the can. same number you threw out a second yeah, ago. Yeah. And then tells us that we must plan future buildings more carefully. <laughs> <laughs> it literally does that. Like a character, I think it's uh, Paul Newman. It is. He's like, oh, I'm going to check with the fire coats before. Well, he's like the building. <laughs> yeah, he's no, the architect. Well, it says, with the fire chief embodied here by Steve McQueen, working in collaboration with the architect, in this case, Paul Newman, who appears to be also the only engineer. In fact, the only person involved in the building's construction or operation above the level of janitor. <laughs> <laughs> the film asks us to believe that until the skyscraper's official opening day the busy newman never noticed that the contractors and subcontractors had cheated on just about everything <laughs> it asks us to believe that this tallest building in the world a golden glass tower that's a miracle of flimsiness as it turns out <laughs> would have been set down in san francisco of all places <laughs> <laughs> it asks us to accept richard chamberlain as a rat fink electrical contractor and as uh, and as the city's leading rue uh-huh this gives one visions too but then this is a movie in which fred astaire an escort to jennifer jones needs a rented tuxedo <laughs> i don't know how she knows that <laughs> <laughs> i missed that part uh and it, yeah it, she goes on for three more paragraphs on it but it, it's that's i mean yeah i mean the towering inferno was looked upon as that you know that's interesting that type of uh what we look at with 2012 and all that but i i would just love to know what she thought of 2012 no. oh yeah oh, i yeah, want to no hear kidding. that woman's review <laughs> well she <laughs> was long gone by know, then but I but i i i would love to have i would have loved to have seen that, oh, that what's funny priceless. is i don't i don't remember it being effects driven in fact like the big blockbuster i guess obviously star wars was but a lot of that stuff obviously was practical mm-hmm uh, but Jaws, you know, there's the famous story about how the shark wouldn't work and things yep. like that, uh, where you had so much realism in this that you couldn't rely on the spectacle like 2012 or Independence Day even or things like that. And I think that's why those things don't hold up. Obviously, they don't have the story. But Towering Inferno, Jeremy and I were just reminiscing on it because we enjoyed it. Because you, you got to know the characters instead of, yeah. you know, just the spectacle. Apparently, she did well, Yeah. Not. I mean, she back talk- then, that looked that was like a 2012 yeah, that came yeah. out at the time. You talk about practical effects, like, you know, the little Star, Star Wars ships, mm-hmm. you know, and the... Um, the other day, I walked in the house with my Star, Starship Enterprise drone, uh-huh. <laughs> held it up to my wife, and I said, the ship was this big, as small as a model. <laughs> 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 but yeah all those star wars ships are teeny tiny little models and uh, i don't think they make them 
Well, I guess uh, I guess J.J. Abrams did a lot of practical. Yeah, Awakens. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, they they went out of their way to try to be practical. Even the the little um, dinner or whatever she makes, where the she drops the water in the thing. And yeah, they even made that practical. Well, and then they fucking invented BB-8. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that he could be real. By the yeah, and that's so another good. reason why practical I think should be used more often is because they find ways to do things it pushes you yeah exactly it's, it's it's so much easier and unfortunately these days cheaper most often to say let's just let the cgi guys cover that yeah yeah and it, it's not there it's not even as the greatest effects are not where people think they should be you no know? unless it's in context like it was was great effects done by our buddy aaron sims yeah um but great effects because in context and in the dark and things like that like that makes sense but it doesn't make sense for the dark tower to have this demon that just jumps out of nowhere and you know has a, a big effects showpiece for no reason whatsoever in the character mm -hmm. you know we talked about thor ragnarok recently all right mm -hmm. they had to have Chris Hemsworth and the guy that plays Loki and Anthony Hopkins all in the same place to shoot that clip scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Presumably they got them all together in L.A. Uh -huh. and shot on a green screen. Now, how much do you think it would cost to fly those three people over to fucking Norway or even Maine's cliff version of Norway? Or there's got to be cliffs <laughs> in the U.S. somewhere. I went to Canada. There's cliffs up in Prince Edward Island. Go fly up there for what? Fifteen hundred bucks a ticket. A mm -hmm. couple of nights in a hotel. Still probably was cheaper to do the green screen. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah, yeah, well, I think it's... I, I, I'm more cynical than you are, Jeremy. That's rare. I think, um, <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. I think it's more laziness than it is. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not blaming like Taika Waititi or any of these people no. for that. I'm blaming like studio and the way things are, where you, you have to have this release date. You have to have all these. You know, you you can't just make a movie and like, well, okay, maybe in a couple weeks we'll have it. You know, whatever. You have to have it on this release date or else. Um, that was the funny thing about the the dissolution. I guess dissolution of the dark universe uh, for uh, for Paramount or mm -hmm. Universal, right? Because they, they, there was one little clip in that release where uh, Universal's head head was saying like, "We're going to take our time on the next movie. We're really going to try to like develop this universe." <laughs> when everybody knows that it just sucks and they're just going to scrap it. You yeah, know? it's dead now, from what I hear. Yeah, but what I'm trying to get at on that is that I think that it on like with special effects i think the special effects actually cost about the same as it does to make practical stuff um it's just that it's easier for a director at this point to say oh we can just get special effects guys to do this i don't think it has much to do with cost really we think it does but i don't think it does um i think it's more about oh it's easier to just let somebody on a computer do this and uh, that's why stuff like that happens. Um, uh, instead of flying them all out there, which you're right, it would have been no cost at all, really, to them in the, you know, the bottom line. Um, instead, though, they're like, well, we really want to go all the way out that way to do that and everything. Why don't we just do it here? And, and you know, and they're putting movies out like this constantly now where, you know, I would be embarrassed to have that in my movie. Yeah. I would be embarrassed, but but now it's it doesn't matter. People just kind of forgive that type of thing. How long is that movie? It's like two hours and fifteen minutes, right? Yeah, something. I like read that. today that there was a scene when they first get back to Asgard at the end on the Rainbow Bridge. Spoilers for the next thirty seconds. Hulk, Loki, 
and Thor all jump out and land on the rainbow bridge together. And Hulk just goes and punches Loki off to the side, like thousands of yards away, like he did in the Avengers. Uh-huh. And the director, God love him, made a great movie, was like, we had to cut it for time, even though all the pre-early audiences loved it. Like, uh- for time? That's a 30-second bit. And yeah. he said everybody loved it. I can find yeah, 30 I'll- seconds in this movie for you to cut. Yes. It's Jeff Goldblum talking. I don't think I'll ever understand that that 30 seconds. Got to cut 30 seconds from a movie. And you have, you know, nowadays, you have like 15 million in-credit scenes, too. Yeah, seriously. Um. Okay, so this is the biggest we've ever gone off topic on but one topic. It's great. I enjoy it. So, um, what else? Uh, and now let, let's getting getting into the decade of the seventies again. What do you notice about the style about the seventies? I, I one thing that I've always noticed. Is, you know, I mean, I guess every decade has this has, especially in the like. Does it? When does it become normal? When do you look at a decade and go, "That's normal"? Uh, um, it's always it, a decade it a matter, and a half previous to what it is now. Or is it a matter of perspective? Because um, in the 70s, man, the hairstyles, they were a little out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's just reflective of the society at the time. But you look at like something like All the President's Men. And you, yeah. And Dustin Hoffman is uh, has hair that looks exactly like Carl Bernstein's from the era, era but it, it I just sit there and go, how did the how was this possible in a professional setting? How is that possible? <laughs> like I just don't like that hair is just like unkempt and everything. Uh, Redford looks like he's be uh, he's above it because he doesn't look a thing like Woodward does. Right. Woodward Woodward had some weird fucked up seventies hair too, but Redford's <laughs> like I'm just gonna be Redford, guys. No, no fuck around. Yeah. I'm not I fucking around with that Bob Woodward yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, there's a scene in the that that uh, always gets me. I don't know what it is. It's they they go into that uh, they go in the library. And they want to get some information, like some, they want to find out who checked out some books mm-hmm. and everything. And the, the, the black guy behind the counter has got that like huge Afro and like, <laughs> and like, like, and like, like uh, sideburns and everything. <laughs> and it's just like, everybody's got this sort of like, just very 70 specific type of hairstyle and they all look like unkempt and unprofessional and and like it's just like what kind of fucking world we really we living in (laughs) i guess the only one that escaped that was well he had some times where it was pretty unkempt was uh jack nicholson yeah um because he had you know the iconic beanie and all that stuff from one flew over the cuckoo's nest mm-hmm. and he was a little unkempt in uh, five e- easy pieces yeah but uh he had a hell of a decade too matter yes, of fact he did you know from from he did easy rider in 69 yep and matter of fact what a what a weird decade he had because he did easy rider he had this wonderful run of one flew over the cuckoo's nest where he's doing in five easy pieces where he's doing these important movies and then he ends it up with the shining in 80 yeah <laughs> so yeah. i mean you know that's a hell of a like an 11 years right there mm-hmm. to yeah. start off with one you know i don't like easy rider at all but he's yeah. definitely the best part of it um and he's certainly you know the touchstone of the by shining. the way do need to mention that the late 60s generally is the where all the 70s really starts is that's where the mpaa officially forms is in the 60s movies that started coming out in the late 60s like the graduate and bonnie and clyde yeah i feel like I, every time you ask me i have to think for a second <laughs> and go oh yeah it was late 60s when those came out right um but they're honorary 70s movies to me 
because that's what that everything that they do is sort of informs what we're going to see in the next decade and uh because yeah that that's that's where i don't know what it is i think they i guess the studios or filmmakers or whatever finally just came to the came to the powers that be and said look we have these great stories we want to tell but we cannot because of this bullshit haze code that we've been operating under for 30 years yeah uh can we can we just make something where we tell the parents what's going what's what's <laughs> happening in this thing before they go in and everything and they're like okay okay changing social mores and whatnot <laughs> and uh and because, yeah, I mean, the 60s were a big decade as far as like, you know, all these people having their, you know, awakenings moment or whatever. Yeah, not, yeah. not awakenings, Robin Williams, Robert De Niro, but <laughs> but um, but like, uh, there, you know, the 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 free love and the free drugs and the all that, you know, all that stuff, man, that I just don't know about because I didn't live in that time, man. Peace, love, dope. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a bellwether event. Like, everybody, it's the cliche to look at uh, Altamont Music Festival as mm -hmm. being, you know, the the end of the, the love generation. But it was a bellwether event. You could tell a huge difference between the late 60s or, you know, right around the, the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, and a lot of it had to do with Vietnam, a lot of it had to do with political activism, a lot of it had to do with the the hangover from one drug and into another class of drugs. Um, it's such a fascinating time to look at, and of course we weren't alive during that, but it's probably like what, what we're going to tell our kids about like you know, living through the 90s and be like, oh, man, that was a whole different thing. There was ideas, man, and there was music and things like that. And it's people like that tied now. flannels around their waists <laughs> like man dresses. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> people were wearing, like, uh, long johns under shorts and shit. <laughs> <laughs> But it was interesting, and I think that's. I think you had to have that that huge event in the late '60s in order to to make the art progress in the '70s. Right, right, and uh, and that's where I, I think that's where you sort of have to base it off of is that that late '60s is really where the influence starts really kicking in. Do you want to talk about the Sting? The Sting is great. I think we've probably talked about it enough. You know, I think mm. no, it's interesting. Uh, you know, when when you were talking about Greece and how you thought that was actually made in the fifties and everything, a fun game sometimes is to look at a period piece and try to figure out what decade it was made in. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, and a lot of times it's weird. You can figure it out. Um, like uh, like it's sometimes it's just the actor that's in the movie. Like oh well, there that actor was big during this time. That's the reason why I know this is the eighties. Sometimes though, it's just the way the film looks. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, and a lot of people I know don't know what I'm talking about out there, but you're the people who put that weird setting on your TV that makes it look live and you don't know there's any difference. <laughs> um, I'll tell you a good example. I was watching a little bit of Barry Lyndon, uh, the mm -hmm. other day, and that is a very seventies looking yeah. historical piece. Uh, even though it's got, that was the one that was shot in all natural light. Yeah. Right? He, he did something revolutionary with candlelight in that movie yeah. and all that. Yeah. I, from what I was watching, like I really enjoyed it, but it, it, it was really like very Kubrickian, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because it's, it's a, almost a standard period piece tale. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he has these shots that you'll later see in the shining and maybe a little bit in full metal jacket where like he'll be you know, a, a wide shot that zooms right in, you know, to, to two characters or something like that. And uh, it's really interesting. Like, you could tell not only that that was a period piece shot in the 70s, mm -hmm. but then you saw, like, the hallmarks of a Kubrick or a Kubrick type of 
type of mentality on the cinematography. But mm-hmm. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking. Yeah, about. it's uh, it, there is there's a there's a certain graininess to film like that uh, you know over the years, even when they polish it up and all that, that st- sort of remains on these movies when you're watching them. And uh, so even when they do a period piece, which is supposed to be very specific to that Mm -hmm. era, you start going, oh, this is a 70s movie. Yeah. And there's a lot of clues to that. It's either the actor or it's their, it's some, but it's a lot of times I have to sit there and I just look at the sort of the grain of, I can date a film sometimes just by looking at the grain of it. Especially now that they don't have cigarette burns anymore, Mm -hmm. because you can still get some movies made in the 80s and 90s play on TV and you can still see the cigarette burn mm. for the projectionist. Oh, yeah. And now that doesn't exist anymore. Nope. Because they were actually smoking cigarettes. From- <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny is they kept doing it right up until they stopped using film, but the the reason they originally did it was because the projectionist had to change from one projector and reel to another one. And that there that was there to let him know when to start making his machine move to change the reel over. But by the time you and I were... Chris and I were working in theaters. We built the whole movie on a platter. We didn't have to change anything over, but they kept putting those cigarette burns on the yeah. end of each reel. And that's the the reason was the reason why was because there were still very few, but there were still a few theaters that did that change the reel thing. Mm. Uh, a Fight Club sort of popularized that term as a cigarette burn, but mm. it's uh, it's they're really called changeover cues, right. and where they that first one that would come up told you to start the projector, and this is when they they measured everything out when they started a projector like uh uh when you know we would thread a projector with what is known as leader right and so that leader would be timed out just so so that when they started it the picture would show up you know now i mean after that though you know like you go to a theater like hollywood 27 in the 90s or whatever it don't matter it's some sort of length as long as we can get to where we need to get who cares if a couple of frames get fucked up because we're not changing reels here um but uh but yeah they would do that so that everything would be lined up perfectly so when they saw that dot they could press start everything would come on and as soon as the second dot came up they could close the dowser and open the other one for the other one and then that would be maybe a real change and if you were really good at it it would look like a stream a continuous stream yeah. uh, i bet it was a lot harder to get right than it sounds like oh, i mean yeah. you and i could probably have done it yeah but i bet you there were plenty of projectionists fucking that shit up yeah no oh, easily <laughs> you, i bet it was common to go to the movies and get like 10 and a half frames of white in between the two reels. <laughs> yeah the changeover nice. right so yeah uh 70s movies are awesome guys. they are awesome yeah i mean uh the that's why I always like going back to those things because when you pop one in, there's just something just completely different, and there's something that sets me at ease about it. Maybe it's just my age. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's our age. But I mean, we didn't see these these movies obviously until well, much later that's after true. they came out. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't. I, I think once we all started loving movies, though, we still hadn't quite gotten into that era where just there was this lack of care. Because remember, the '90s is the next big decade yeah. of like independent film and everything so we knew we started we were i don't know we're in a perfect age to like know what a good movie is mm-hmm. uh whatever you motherfuckers born after the 90s don't know what a good movie is you guys are dicks <laughs> you, you guys <laughs> you're the reason why this entire society is crumbling <laughs> <laughs> just kidding just kidding <laughs> you have to couch it sometimes oh yes yes you have to couch it because yes. people don't know they yes, don't know you're don't kidding know. they don't know
So it's time to talk about HelloFresh again. HelloFresh. HelloFresh. Hello. It is the way to to get uh, very good meals through the mail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually tell you how to cook it and give you all the ingredients and everything. They give you the portions of the ingredients you need. Yes. And it's usually 30 minutes or less, these recipes. And now, just in time for the holiday season, mm-hmm. yeah, baby. they've mm-hmm. got some special holiday recipes. We're yeah. there. We're there. We're right in the middle of the holidays. You can't deny it. It's here. Mm-hmm. Winter yeah. is coming. Why? Why? Exactly. Why beat somebody over the head for that last turkey when you can call HelloFresh? <laughs> Exactly. Stop beating ass. Exactly stop, stop being the Terminator out there. <laughs> like the end of Jingle All the Way, only with turkeys. Yeah, exactly. Because you know what's happening out there. It's chaos out there, yeah. guys. People happening. are hitting people over the heads <laughs> it's over everywhere. the turkeys. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of like uh, really cool things that they're uh, they're uh, coming out with for the holidays too. Yeah, and if you've got you know the holidays are a busy time, right? Everybody's bustling all over the place, running mm-hmm. around. Picking up these kids, dropping off these people, picking up relatives, making up the bed in the guest room. Mm-hmm. You've got less free time in the holiday season than you typically would, which makes HelloFresh even more convenient at that time of year. And that's why they're doing special like holiday, you know, warm home cook feeling kind of meals. That's right. Mm-hmm. Like I got my eye on this meatloaf a la mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can't with, go wrong with, with that. Roasted root vegetables and thyme, thyme gravy. Now yeah. gravy I like. You don't even have to do anything to it. And I'm in. Um, you put gravy in the conversation, and I'm listening. But mm-hmm. yeah. time gravy, mm-hmm. meatloaf, yeah. all a mom. I'm down. I'm, I know. I'm getting that one for sure. They've even got an apple cranberry stuffing. Ooh, that's right. Ooh. That's right. They're not messing around, Ooh. man. Oh my god. And man, these these things come like you know freezer packed in mm-hmm. uh, you know right to your door. You, you just unbox it. They've got like super easy to follow directions. Yeah. On how to like chop zest, you know carve all that stuff <laughs> yeah. saute all those all those weird cooking terms they got gotcha. you like they gotcha. knifing and spooning <laughs> yes i'll show you how to spoon right <laughs> melon balling yes <laughs> there it is on a card how to melon ball you take a melon baller and insert it into melon yes. and twist Indeed. someone's like oh <laughs> i got that that's how i thought you it was a tiny it. ice cream you school. know what another the another holiday themed one here that is like i'm i just want to order it right now mm-hmm is figgy pork tenderloin with green beans and rosemary potatoes. Mm. Fig that sounds figalicious. It sounds outstanding. Yes. It sounds like you will have a good Thanksgiving or whatever day you decide to, to order this. Yeah. When you cook up the figgy pork tenderloin. They didn't call it fig pork tenderloin. That's right. It's figgy. Figgy. They're, That's it's right. getting figgy with it. Hey. <laughs> indeed. Hey, it's holidays, okay? You gotta get figgy with it. You well, know? They're going to change the, the lyrics in the song to bring us some figgy tenderloin. Of course they are. Of course they are. Because that's how awesome this They're is. also going to change the lyrics to the Will Smith song. Yes. Yeah. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Keep figgy with it. What's our URL? <laughs> People want to hop on this train. What's the URL for them? HelloFresh.com. Just go right to the website. Okay. Enter when you when you get to the, the checkout portion, enter Sincast30. You get $30 off. Your first week of shopping. Wow. That's, that is significant, folks. Yeah, That's a lot of, of, of dough going into this. It's not actual dough. Mm-hmm. I love it's the money. way you roll your eyes in like micro fashion <laughs> when you say something that you you think, man, there's probably a better word. That was a little punny. And you do this little micro second 
and then you move on and it's just you know, I don't want to sound weird but it's adorable mm-hmm. yeah, it's years of saying stupid stuff and realizing it mid-sentence mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes go to hellofresh.com syncast 30 $30 off first order man it's good stuff yeah check it out and uh, we enjoyed it and we hope you do too yeah yeah alright you want to do some questions let's do some questions question question I got something to say I am listening. We got really good ones. I'm excited about these questions. That's never a good sign for me. Really? Yeah. Uh, by the way, go to Facebook, uh, go to SoundCloud, go to email, go to Twitter, submit these questions, Reddit. Uh, we are looking at all of those things and we're pulling from the best of the best. So definitely keep those coming. Uh, first one is what is the best use of anachronism on film? Uh, this person gave the example of the 90s, 90s-ness of Robin Hood men in tights, mm, yeah. uh, which is good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I am okay. So the movie I'm about to uh, come up with here, there's going to be a lot of people out there who say that's not a period piece. Uh, but I think it's so conflict, it's so conflicted that you can still infer that it's an anachronism. So Monty Python, the Holy Grail, which of course by yeah. the end of it, you see modern day cops pulling it, like arresting people and everything. <laughs> yeah. The problem, if you if you take that seriously, is that there's so much real medieval time stuff going on. Yes. Now maybe maybe it's a comment on 1970s England for all I know. <laughs> like there's real medieval like towns going on and people who act that way. Yes, there actually is uh, is large weddings uh, for like swamp <laughs> castle castles and like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's there's a grail shaped beacon at the top. Of- <laughs> yes, exactly. I honestly I honestly think they came up with that thing at like last minute or something and just said let's just end this with the arresting everybody because like there's no that makes no sense whatsoever no, i hate that ending um that's an anachronism in itself but uh the thing that i'm thinking about is the holy hand grenade oh, i nice. believe the holy hand grenade makes the is an anachronism that is uh, is a beautiful part of this movie <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh it just makes it better everything from the guy going through going through the scripture to read yep. the thing about how to use the holy hand grenade to them using it and it does fucking nothing um <laughs> is a is a fantastic part of that movie and it would it's a better movie for having that anachronism in it what i love about that i love every part of that scene but what i love most about it is that that's the first fucking time that that has come up yeah where they're like we can't risk another frontal attack that rabbit's dynamite and he's like what can we do i don't know we do have the holy hand grenade. <laughs> yeah. There's like and they've this, had a contingent like following them with Brother Main. Well, it's the thing. There's like this there's this large group of people that are off screen during this movie. Like, <laughs> like they they're like, who did we lose in that? And they're like, they rattle off all the like Gawain and and like all these different like literary knights and everything. Like Gawain. <laughs> um so uh so yeah, there that's another funny part about that movie. Anyway. Uh, that's so great mm. I don't like my answer for this question oh yeah I got two but I don't think either one really works that that Walkman in Guardians I really I just I'm not asking for much man just turn it <laughs> over once and show me some kind of whiz popper from planet Xandar that he glued on the back that yeah. powers that thing yeah 
because well and even not power i think like we said and i think you wrote this chris but in mm-hmm. the guardians 2 video even if he's got power those fucking things broke all the time yep oh yeah they broke constantly and his is working perfectly some what 30 years after yep. he took it off of earth give me a break yeah and he hasn't <laughs> gone back to earth and it's not like every it's not like all the planets in the universe are selling double a's right there's not like a space batteries plus right like i mean they have magical batteries like what they the what rocket steals from the the gold again people. i don't you just want to attach one of those fuckers to yep. the back yeah. of the walkman then my complaints start to go away right yep. and uh well apparently they had a hard time finding walkmans for that too oh, yeah. they had to have i think the prop guy had to like build a new walkman or something <laughs> for that because they couldn't find a real well, they're one. like six hundred dollars now to get an actual walkman i guarantee oh, really? you i've got one in my garage do you really i guarantee you wow i have a disc man I never yeah. got one of those. I wasn't clever or wealthy enough. <laughs> I just, I'm, I, I never had one of those. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I got nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other one I thought of is not really quite a good answer, but in um, Wonder Boys, which is this movie I love, Michael Douglas plays this author who's had one hit and it's been 10 years and he's working on his follow-up and everybody's asking him about it. But he insists on typing on a typewriter from like the 50s. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, which this movie takes place in and came out in, I think, the late 90s. Early 2000. Two, 2000. So, you know, even if you're a 50-year-old, if you had a hit novel and you're a professor at a university, you know how to type on a damn computer. Mm-hmm. You're using Word or you're using whatever Apple's version of Word was in 2000. <laughs> it does set up that great gag at the end when Robert Downey Jr. crashes the car yeah. and all 2,000 pages of his <laughs> book go flying out all over the place. Especially with him like picking up like random pieces of paper and showing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I, like, got I got that one! one. <laughs> um, and they have this whole conversation in the car where the guy's asking him, you know, that's the only copy you had? You didn't have a backup copy? Anyway, um... <laughs> It's always bothered me. It felt like a little bit of an easy character trait, you know, like uh, characterization through, you know, some cheap. Oh, I only use old. Yeah. Pick, pluck, pick, pluck. I only use old typewriters because <laughs> I prefer the tactile. That's your writer. You don't love the sound of a goddamn typewriter. You yeah. like the words. Yeah. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I'm done. Now, I mean, I will say no. The, yeah. As far as this question is concerned, they're asking what makes the movie better. Uh-huh. Um, and and also. Now, I guess there's, I, I would say that's anachronistic that he does that. And I'm not sure if it's an anachronism, though, it, it, to have a typewriter in in the year 2000. No. I think it's more of an anachronism if they had, you know, a computer like a laptop in 1943. Yeah. Um, that would be more of an anachronism. But I think the definition can be expanded here to say... It's anachronistic for him to use a typewriter. It's anachronistic for, you know, Star-Lord to be uh, listening to a Walkman when there's probably <laughs> a million different kinds of, you know. I mean, right at home, at home at my house, I have a little thing that costs me eight bucks. I can put a cassette tape in it mm-hmm. and turn it into a digital file. USB into my computer. There's no space version of that shit. <laughs> Digitize that shit. You don't even have to carry around a bit. Fuck. It. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now he has a Zune. Yes. yes. Oh, there you That's go. That's lovely. Uh, I'm glad the the listener actually mentioned uh, Mel Brooks, the uh, Men in Tights mm-hmm. in the '90s version of that. Um, I always love the stuff in Spaceballs, mm-hmm. which is so '80s. Yep. Um, you know, no better example than when they lose Vespa and Lone Star. Like they're they go into hyperspace and they they can't or they overshoot them with the ludicrous speed, right? Mm-hmm. And so they completely lose who they're tracking. 
and uh, he's talking. Dark Helmet's talking to his his uh, officer, and he's like, "What can we do?" And they're like, "Oh, we have the uh, the videotape." And so they go and then they they reveal all of these VHS yeah. tapes, and they're all Mel Brooks movies. It's Blazing Saddles, oh, and like Silent Movie, and stuff like that. And they're like, "Spaceballs the movie." And Dark Helmet's like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. <laughs> and then they have this whole thing of like, you know, we can we can find them by skipping ahead in the movie. Uh, but then they finally get to the point in the movie where it's them, and mm-hmm. they're talking about this is us now. Yeah. The, the now <laughs> is happening now. But I always thought it was hilarious to have a VHS like you know setup in this. Yeah. Super Super futuristic movie. Right. Mel Brooks does that really, really well. Oh, this is fun. I'm going to not do this in a British accent. Ahoy from Jolly Old Blighty, Mm. which is England. Mm. I've never heard England referred to as Jolly Old Blighty. I haven't either. Um, We learn something new every day. Really feel like I've grown as a person. Mm -hmm. Love your vids and your podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I was wondering if you guys had any pick-me-up films that you also go to if you're feeling particularly down or need something to help you uh, along in the day uh, this person watches jeremy's favorite the court jester uh, and uh, also says it's a mad 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 world which is a, mm. a great one uh, to pick him up what do you guys think i do this most often with fraser and friends and seinfeld episodes it's like a if happy I'm, place right if i yeah if i'm if, whether it's need in, inspiration or i'm just kind of down and i want to pick me up or something that's going to get me laughing uh, but for a movie answer i'd say galaxy quest which mm-hmm. thankfully is playing on stars like crazy lately yeah, so it it's is. been on in my house a bunch because every beat of that film works perfectly for me. It's funny. Every every section, every scene has big laughs. Um, it just it's my feel good place. I think it's a, partly because I'm such a Trek fan, and this is such a brilliant skewering but tribute. So, Galaxy Quest is my answer. Hmm. Um, I've got to say that normally I probably don't like just go and watch a movie when I'm down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if I were if I were down and I were to pop a movie in, it would be the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, um, oh. I don't never failed to feel good uh, after watching after watching that movie. Um, now, you if you're down and you're watching it, there might be some like disturbing things for you to have to sit through to get to that point to get to the ending of it. But um, I think uh, ultimately, though, you, you especially if you've seen it before, yeah. Um, you're going to put, you're going to pop that thing in and you're going to, you're going to feel good by the end of it. Like that, that message of hope and that, that, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what we were talking about with these seventies movies. It has a, <laughs> it has an uplifting ending. Um, uh, yeah. How would don't sh- throw in taxi driver. How would Shawshank, yeah, don't do not watch taxi driver. That is correct. Uh, how would Shawshank Redemption play in the seventies? They would have made that completely different. Oh yeah. Um, probably even more disturbing. Yeah. It would be extremely disturbing, but, uh, you know, for, for some real good feel, feel good moments, Shawshank Redemption would be mine. Yeah, Good I've call. got a I've got a weird one that uh, always seems to be playing on like TNT or something like that late at night. Wedding Crashers. And oh. I know you guys aren't are a huge fan of this movie, but every every part of that like makes me smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a tiny little downturn uh, where Owen Wilson kind of goes off on his own and tries to crash weddings by himself. But everything before that is Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn just playing off of each other really i think beautifully like they they have a really good chemistry Mm -hmm. uh they're all like you know hyping each other up and everything even when they're angry at each other um there's this scene where uh after vince vaughn has been kind of violated by uh the son uh who who has a crush on him he goes down and there's this huge breakfast buffet 
and he's he's pissed off. And, and Owen Wilson's like, I just need a little more time, you know, hang with me and everything. And he starts just piling up his plate with every fucking thing on this this breakfast buffet. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, sausages and like this and all this stuff. It's this huge stack and then he just fucking pours maple syrup <laughs> over the top of it. He's like, I'm going to recharge the batteries. I'll come back and we'll we'll do this. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then they're friends again and everything. And just everything works for me on that. Like uh, Isla Fisher and Christopher yeah. Walken and even Rachel McAdams. Bradley Cooper, Owen Wilson, Vince Vaughn, Will Ferrell in the cameo mm-hmm. towards the end. Like, that just makes me smile every time. That Isla I Fisher it. is the best part of that movie for me. She is hilarious. She's so funny in that. She she's she sold me just on the trailer alone when she's, like, got that crazy-ass laugh, you know. Um, she's like, don't run Because I'll come find I'll you. I'll come find you. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, ha <laughs> <laughs> she's got that scene where like they're uh they're they initially want to leave or vince vaughn wants to leave and he's like i need more time we'll go to you know we'll go to their house and everything and she goes to to ask christopher walken her dad and he's you can tell that they're arguing she starts holding her breath and like stopping yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then she has that great term where she's just like I wasn't a virgin, you know? I just thought that's what guys like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vince Vaughn, like, she's got a screw loose. And you know what? I dig it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, what are your favorite underrated hero monologues in a movie uh, where the villain gets their satisfying comeuppance? Oh, man. the Now, this, I don't know if this qualifies as a monologue, considering the fact there are two people involved in this. So it would be more of a dialogue, but there is one person in charge of it. Mm-hmm. This is Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin in The Edge. Uh-huh. Nice. And uh, they are tearing into some David Mamet dialogue here. David Mamet doing a big adventure picture. Oh, it's um, such a good movie. He's like, uh, Anthony Hopkins is trying to get Alec Baldwin to uh, to get excited about killing this bear and everything. Because, you know, you're going to have to do it, man. This bear is going to kill us if we don't kill him first. Mm-hmm. He's like, Anthony Hopkins is like, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. And uh, and he's like, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. He keeps saying, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. And Alec Baldwin's like, I'm going to kill the bear. And then he's like, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. Say it again. He's like, I'm going to kill the bear. And then it's like, uh, he's like, good. What, what what one man can do, another man can do. What one man can do, another man can do. And he, Alec Baldwin comes back and says, what one man can do, another man can do. What one man can do. And then finally, Anthony Hopkins, this is the part that sells it. This is the part that tells you you're going to go fucking kill that bear. He's like, yeah you goddamn right today i'm gonna kill the motherfucker (laughs) (laughs) listening to anthony hopkins say the word motherfucker is the best (laughs) today i'm gonna kill the motherfucker is the best fucking thing it's in the it's actually in the trailer of course that was one of those where they they, you know they cut it off and it's so funny blah 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 because they cut off the swear word but uh, but I was like, oh, ooh, I'm kind of intrigued with this movie. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins going to drop an f bomb. It's pretty nice. <laughs> That's a great movie. I like it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Michael Clayton. Um, oh, because the final little talk that George Clooney has with uh, fuck Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Is so satisfying mm. and cathartic, and. I think I've already spoiled this movie before. It's not a brand new movie, but basically my, Michael Clayton is a fixer for a law firm and somebody drives drunk, one of the lawyers for the firm or one of their clients, what have you. They send out Clooney 
to fix it. Uh, and that includes a wide variety of skills. And one of his friends, uh, another lawyer at the firm, uh, is going insane, basically, uh, slowly losing his mind. And through a course of events, um, basically Clooney's driving and he sees some pretty horses on a hill and his life is pretty fucked up and he's thinking about stuff and just enough where you'd stop that car and I'm going to go look at those horses. <laughs> and he just walks up the hill to where the horses are and they don't appear to be scared of him and his fucking car blows up. Yep. <laughs> uh, because the basically there's a pharmaceutical firm the law firm represents and they have de deemed him, you know, he needs to go. He knows too much. So basically they're having this big meeting with the shareholders at some uh, boring convention center and and Tilda Swinton comes out and Clooney basically accosts her and he's like telling her, I know everything. I know this and that and this. And basically, she eventually breaks and says, how much? How much do you want? How much will it take? Um, and uh, right before he reveals that he's been recording the whole conversation, he starts to get really agitated. But the part I really love the most is where he goes, I am not the guy you kill. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm the guy you buy off. Yeah. I, am guy, I am the guy you send in to kill somebody. Yeah. Basically, the, the way he delivers that, I am not the guy you kill. And then her face when she sees the cops coming and realizes she's just been recorded and screwed. It's just ah, oh, makes me want to get off my couch and That's, cheer. That's uh, one of the all time. Uh, I I don't like really audience reaction in movies where people are clapping and shit because mm. you know clapping is for live audience for live show for me, but. Uh, when Clooney shows up in that room, that had that's one of the few moments where you're like, oh, okay, I get, I, I can get on board with everybody clapping. Yeah, everything <laughs> was in a sold out auditorium, and uh, when they when he just shows, it's kind of in the corner of some of that that room and just in the shadows or whatever, and surprises her. Everybody's like, woo! <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost like he's offended. Yeah, that they the, try well, that's this. why it's such a great line reading. Because <laughs> yeah. he's like, you're such an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. You're so stupid. <laughs> you don't kill me. <laughs> I work for, just pay me off. Yeah, he's anyway. pissed off at their stupidity more than he is of them trying to actually kill him. Yeah, he's like, exactly. what the fuck, man? Exactly. Um, one of my least favorite, this made me think about my least favorite hero monologues. And it's fucking The Dark Knight. Brilliant mm. movie. But I cannot stand that line delivery that Christian Bale gives when Joker's hanging upside down. And he's like, this city just showed you that people are ready to believe in good. <laughs> and he's still doing the fucking bat voice. And it's just like, God damn it, man. Like, just no, it doesn't well, work. The Internet me. says the bat voice is part of the suit and he's not putting it on. Oh, come on. I, I understand that in, in the bat flag version because he's got the Funnel Fury butter bar thing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but he has it in the uh, the other movies, too. That shows him Spacow. somewhere early in Batman Begins. It shows him putting something in the suit, and everybody says that's what makes it. There's Even no, though it's not, yeah, it's not as well defined. There's no. He's got this weird. People are ready for good. He's got like this weird. Anyway, fuck it. Yeah, it's, it's, my, it's funny because you forget how bad that line is because the rest of the movie's so yeah. good. But it's just as bad as the end of Dark Knight Rises, where he's like, "No, Bane, I came back to stop you." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, but my favorite one is in the middle of the movie. Um, so it's it's kind of a weird hero monologue, but it, it's uh, William Wallace and Braveheart where he goes, he's like, hey, where are you going? I'm going to pick a fight. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
He's so menacing in that midfield meeting where they're just like, all right, here are the terms. You surrender right here. You get your nobles get blah, 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 that kind of thing. And uh, William Wallace is just like prancing around in his horse and everything. And he's just like, yeah, I've got a demand for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he does all this stuff. And then uh, and then further, uh, I want to get this quote right. Before we let you leave, your commander must cross that field, present himself before this army, put his head between his legs, and kiss his own arse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's laughing. His eyes are all lit up and everything. He's yeah. just like, this is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> oh, man. The way that he taunts those guys is just fucking great. Yeah. 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 The movie still needs to chop about 22 minutes. But I agree. You know what? I haven't uh, I haven't uh, watched it under, under that light recently. Like uh, It came on recently. I watched it and I was like back. I was 18 again when that movie came on came on. Uh, but I, I haven't gotten to that point where I'm like, oh, it really could use a trim. I haven't gotten to that. I always quote that one line he says to his girlfriend, to my wife. I love you. <laughs> always have, always will. <laughs> and then she dies. Yeah. Not my wife. Yeah, right. <laughs> his girlfriend in the movie. Well, they've got the wonderful. Uh, uh, it's in basketball, isn't it? Yep. Where uh, Trey Parker and Matt's. I love you. Always have. Always will. I want to marry you. <laughs> I want to marry you. <laughs> yeah, they do a lot of little like '90s quotes and that, and uh, they do the Titanic and all that. I love those conversations they have in the dugout because then they've got the whole like, dude, dude, yeah, dude, <laughs> dude. Well, I guess you do have a point. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do one last one. Um, this question sent me into a tailspin of mental acrobatics. Mm-hmm. A question for the next podcast. In the spirit of the best five consecutive movies question that we had a few weeks ago, what is your favorite set of five consecutive songs on an album? Now, for the kids out there, there used to be these things called albums mm-hmm. that had a, a track list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess the only person that does that these days is Taylor Swift. She yeah, yeah, has yeah. a it's on her face and everything. Yeah, so if you know Taylor Swift, then you know an album. Yes, you know an album, and they have a certain order. They're not all in you a Spotify. You know what, though? Honestly, though, Barrett, that might be a little glib of you to do that. It because, is extremely glib. Because I do believe that the album is starting to make a bit of a comeback. Actually, records uh, themselves have started to make a comeback, which means, therefore, albums are starting to make a comeback. Sweet. I love so, it. There you go. Uh, for example, this person uh, would have to be Time, The Great Gig in the Sky, Money, Us and Them, and Any Color You Like from The Dark Side of the Moon. Now, that's a great list. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. What do you think? What are the best five consecutive tracks this on is, an album? D- d- despite what Barrett's going to tell you, this is a lot fucking harder than you think it is. It very much is. Because you'll get on a roll. It's just like when we had to do the best run of movies in our alphabetized blu-ray list you'll get on a roll one two three four oh my god uh that fucking song yep. shit doesn't mm-hmm. count it's very difficult um okay so uh an album that i wore out in the 90s is radiohead the bends mm-hmm. it starts off with planet telex which is a great song the bends the title the title song is great high and dry is an awesome it's a it was a single that was released fake mm-hmm. plastic trees which is my favorite off that entire album yep and bones which is not as well known but it's a great song too and uh and uh so nearly that whole album i was about to say 12 in a row are good on that album there is a a lulls towards the end towards the end of that album but that said the first five are all winners see i was i totally agree with you i think though 
you can make a case for just my iron lung and then the rest of that album mm-hmm. too. Oh yeah, just as amazing. Yeah. Um I was I was now I was I was trying to refresh my memory on it and I was like, yeah, I don't I, I may not listen to those songs as much as I listen to those first Yeah, cuz then you have Black Star and then you have uh oh man, no, there's some there's No, some the, great, the whole album's great. The whole it's, album's yeah. so good, man. That's a that's a good call. Yeah. All right. Well, I know you wanted me to go with my Reinhold Messner pick that I put in the email, but I'm not going to I like that pick. Reinhold Messner's an awesome album. You mm-hmm. should definitely check it out. Uh, but I'm going to go with Freddie Johnson. Uh, the album's This Perfect World. If you know a song by Freddie Johnson, you probably know Bad Reputation. Uh-huh. I mm. know I got a bad reputation. Featured um, at the end of Kicking and Screaming, the Noah Bombag version. Well, all right then. Yeah. <laughs> a, fa- a fantastic song that sa- somehow doesn't even fall within my five. I love this album. I In 98, in the nine months when I lived in Chattanooga, between college and moving here to Nashville, I listen to this album every day. What is the album called again? This Perfect World. Oh, yeah. It's actually the name of a song. Mm-hmm. Um, so the songs, the five in a row are Two Lovers Stop, Across the Avenue, which is maybe my favorite song on the whole album, uh, Gone Like the Water, which is freaking awesome and kind of jangly, uh, Dolores, which is another upbeat kind of pop harmony thing, and then uh, Evie's Garden, which is almost kind of like a little bit of a happy lullaby. Mm. Um, now, I... I thought for sure this was going to be a guy that I hopped on his bandwagon forever. That's how much I loved this album. And I bought his next album, and it was like one song on it I liked. Hmm. And I haven't really paid any attention to what he's done since. He's got kind of a... I, I don't know why I make this comparison, but he's got kind of the same aesthetic as Fountains of Wayne. Yeah, well, it was the same era of me discovering both of them. Mm-hmm. It was also in oh, the, the Sundays. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But there was this great offshoot band from Fountains of Wayne where one of... Two of the guys from Fountains of Wayne and this girl had a band called Ivy, where the girl did the singing, and it's like, it's like uh, Fountains of Wayne after a couple of quaaludes. Mm. <laughs> mm. I don't know if that explains it very well, <laughs> but we listened awesome. to the shit out of that album too. Anyway, uh, it is extremely hard to do this mm-hmm. um, because when I started this exercise, I was thinking about what are the best albums of all time. Michael Jackson's Thriller is an easy candidate and it's got great songs, but there's always something that screws it up. Yep. Like you've got uh, Thriller, Beat It, Billy Jean, and then you get Human Nature and Pretty Young Things. Yeah. So it's like, fuck, man. Yeah. And so then I went to Michael Jackson's Bad, and Bad's got this great run to close out the album. It's got Man in the Mirror, mm. uh, but then it's got I Just Can't Stop Loving You, oh, followed by Dirty Diana, Smooth Criminal, and Leave Me Alone. Yeah. Oh. So if that fucking song wasn't in there, it would be perfect, but that fucking song is awful. It's wow. awful. Wow. Uh, but that the rest of that is awesome. So there is one other. Okay. I've got several for this. I won't, I won't go through all of them because music is so personal and a lot of people haven't heard. I've, I listed Tom Waits, which is a great... Uh, an album called Small Change from 1976. Probably a lot of people haven't heard that. But a lot of people have heard Prince's Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. Another one that I thought would be a shoe-in just all the way through. But after Let's Go Crazy, you've got Take Me With You, which is a terrible song. Mm-hmm. Then you've got The Beautiful Ones, awesome song. Then you've got Computer Blue, <laughs> <laughs> which is a fucking terrible song. After that, though, it's got a great run of five songs. Darling Nikki, When Doves Cry, I Would Die For You, Baby I'm a Star. In Purple Rain. Ah. Um, so that is is definitely uh, by far the winner. But I've got a couple of other ones. I've always thought that the Killers had the most perfect side A of all time. 
and then the worst side B of all time in Hot Fuss, their their debut in two thousand four. All of the hits, every single one of their singles was the first five songs. Mm-hmm. Jenny was a friend of mine. Mister Brightside, smile like you mean it. Somebody told me, and all these things I've done. Yeah, and then the That's album crazy... just fucking. It's a terrible side B, but it's a great side A. Um, and then just two other ones. Uh, Weezer Pinkerton is mm. a great album and, and very influential album to me. Also doesn't have, because it's got some weird themes in there, uh, but the last half of that album is great. The Good Life, El Scorcho, Pink Triangle, Falling for You, and Butterfly mm. are all terrific tracks. And then one that maybe uh, people haven't heard, I think I introduced Chris to this. It was uh, Fiona Apple's most recent album. Hmm. It's called The Idler Wheel. And then a bunch of other words mm-hmm. after that, the whipping chords and things <laughs> like that. Uh, but the idler wheel dot, dot, dot is essentially how it's known. And uh, please go out and listen to this album. Start to finish, it's fantastic. It's from 2012. But it's got this, uh, to close out the album, Left Alone, Werewolf, Periphery, Regret, Anything We Want, and then this song called Hot Knife, where it has about 10 different vocal tracks of Fiona Apple singing over herself. Hmm. And it's unbelievable. And in fact, Fiona Apple's sister is also on that hmm. uh, doing a vocal track. Interesting. Um, if you, if the very least, if you just um, Google Hot Knife and listen to it, I think you'll really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I do believe that that video was directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. They used to date. Yes. And uh, he's done one or two of her videos. One of them may have been Across the Universe uh, from the Pleasantville album hmm. soundtrack, not mm-hmm. album. Anyway, great question. Love it. Thank you. Good question. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see, everybody. Keep going to uh, Sincast presented by CinemaSins Facebook. Uh, going to SoundCloud. Uh, going to CinemaSins Twitter. Going to Reddit. Going to uh, write us an email. Uh, We're everywhere, we baby. Just uh, we've got just comments galore. That's right. Uh, and uh, you know, all three of us are manning different areas <laughs> of that uh, that comment uh, world there. Uh, but uh, keep going there and giving us some comments. Um, and uh, that'll do it for this week. It's Chris Atkinson, Jeremy Scott, and Barrett Share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. I saw a funny comment. I think it was on the subreddit that said, "Do a do a syncast on the Mount Rushmore of Ninja Turtles." <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Done, done, and done. I just love the way her smile turns when she's like, "Do it, Mister M." Oh yeah, do it. <laughs> Fill me up. <laughs> I was watching a little bit of Red Dragon earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, they even got the guy um, when they made Hannibal. Who's like selling off the Lecter merchandise mm-hmm. and like Clarice comes and confronts him, but she really just wants to know who he sold it to. Mm-hmm. And it's Gary Oldman. Um, but that actor, the black guy, I can't think of his name. Um, he's even in Red Dragon as the orderly at the mental health facility. Really? Yeah. He's like the guy that brings in the phone to Lecter and says, you have five minutes to talk to your lawyer. Hmm. I was like, oh, because I had just seen Hannibal a couple weeks ago. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised you go back and look at Sons of the Lambs if he's in that one, too. Interesting. Mina Suvari? Was yeah. she in Silence of the Lambs? Totally. American Silence of the Lambs? Mm-hmm. Do it, Mr. Lecter.
Fill me <laughs> up. It's <laughs> so Frankie Faison, who's uh, he's a he's in a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, a yeah. character actor. Frankie Faison. Uh, oh, he's in The Wire. He's in The Silence of the Lambs. He's he's Nurse Bernie. There you go. So he's in oh, all yeah. three. He's in Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon, and Hannibal. That's crazy. They had that same thread. I agree. All the way through. Although there. I think the. I don't think he's in Hannibal, but the the Chilton guy that runs the asylum is in Silence of Lambs and Red Dragon. Oh yeah, is that the Anthony, Anthony Held? Held? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my buddy uh, Jason, who flies the news helicopter, and he did two tours in Afghanistan and two in Iraq, where he flew Blackhawks. Jeez, like the whole time he was like describing like how they feel and like the difference between that and Chinooks, and I guess that was probably a Chinook, the one with the two rotors on it. Mm um and like it's just it's crazy he's like yeah man you know you get in there and it's got a different feel to it and blackhawks are the greatest helicopters in the world and all that stuff like man except when like they to... go down in somalia yeah they... that's that's rough that's that's, some bad that's shit a bad right there. time for every actor in hollywood <laughs> but especially josh hartnett mm-hmm. i like that movie a lot yeah, yeah. it's just hard to watch <clears throat> it well is. i know some soldiers who who uh like couldn't watch that movie because it's so oh really such a devastating story yeah. is that ridley scott yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah he had two movies that year black hawk down and hannibal oh yeah we were just talking we about were just talking about hannibal <laughs> i thought for sure you were gonna say body of lies or body of evidence whatever the one is with leo body of lies that no one in the world has ever seen have you seen it no one i know in the world has ever seen <laughs> what it. I've, I've seen it shit you gotta ruin my my shit right yeah. off the bat it's I remember, in the collection i remember uh one of the ushers because uh, i was in new york when that movie came out <laughs> he's like he's like uh he's like you're gonna be watching bodies of lies tonight <laughs> bodies of lies man i want to watch bodies of lies <laughs> he, he's the same guy who was like like during the Ram that that Rambo last Rambo movie it was just like oh, oh! <laughs> and uh, and uh, and like uh, in Blood Diamond he's he sees Jaiman Hounsou and he's like hey hey I know who that is that's that give us us free guy <laughs> what give us us free from Amistad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah, he, i remember him we were watching miami vice he gets up in the middle of it and he goes corny shit oh i might be walking out of uh justice league justice league and uh a week it's or going so. To pound you into submission. I'm actually very excited that it's only two hours. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> me too. I was so, also very excited that the emoji movie is only like 78 minutes without credits. Oh, uh, I escaped that one. <sighs> Thank goodness. It's so uh, dumb. Of course, I did have to watch Daddy's Home. Um, well, that, that's probably all I need to say right there. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're popular entertainment mm-hmm. movies. So. <laughs> entertainment movies yes <laughs> by the way emoji movie i thought that it didn't make any money oh it made money it made money it made some fucking money. all overseas mm-hmm. it only made like 60 it made, grand no 60 it made money here. here too 60 grand 60 grand made, oh yeah it made 85 86 million yeah, here yeah it was it was uh believed the number one movie when it came out if it wasn't number one it was certainly yeah, it was number two yeah. way up there where it like shouldn't have been did you see the uh the holiday talking points no i no. i ignored that <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. I was I was 
racking my brain to figure out what steak a poivre was last night. Where were you that you were trying to figure that out? I was making steaks. Is that P-O-I-V-R-E? Is that potatoes? No, palms are... Palm de terre yeah, is potatoes, palm right? Yeah, is, is potato, but P-O-I-V-R-E? Is that Correct. the word? yes. Like favre. <laughs> can, I, can I hear it uh, in a sentence? <laughs> What's the country of origin? I was eating some steak au poivre <laughs> last night. How could you be eating it if you didn't know what it was? No, I didn't make the au poivre. I just made the steak part. Oh, okay. But you never found out? No, I didn't really look it up. I was just, as I was preparing it, I was like, I wonder what steak au poivre means. Never even heard it. Now you're, just, you're just making up shit to not know to give yourself Pepper. more work. Oh, well, then I had steak au poivre. Poivre. Fuck. You had a pepper steak. Steak au poivre. It yeah. sounds so much better in French, doesn't it? It's really good. The steak was good. Mm-hmm. I still think the steak is better at a place like Morton's or what have you. Mm-hmm. But this place is like a whole wet bar, oysters, seafood. Ooh, nice. And... The two things I really liked is the the bread they bring out to your table. It's like uh, buttered, salted on top dinner rolls that are hot. Mm-hmm. That was the best thing I ate all evening. But then with my steak, I was also ordered to have all these butters that you can get with it on the side. And I got nice. a blue cheese butter oh. to spread on my steak bites. Oh. Mm. It's good. Oh. That sounds like it's, it's awesome. Good. I recommend that. I also, like the, the so ambiance is awesome there. It's very cool. Nice. I'm all. I'm on board for like whiskey and oysters and steak. Seems like that kind of place. I'm all right. I know with that. you're an oyster guy. So. Have you been to the Southern? The Southern? Mm-hmm. No. That's like the the place for steak and oysters yeah. and shit like that. It's actually that, in the name, isn't it? The Southern Steak and Oyster Bar. Oh yeah, I think it is. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> I've been I've been there once. It's awesome. Yeah. I just I don't like oysters, but you know, you give me a good piece of red meat, I'm gonna have a good time. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, but they found me, Marty. the libyans who do you think the libyans i like how einstein knows that there's a fucking dog a fucking car driving (laughs) two miles away woof woof what is it honey (laughs) i remember when i was doing comments back in the day back to the future somebody was like dogs can totally hear a lot of shit far away (laughs) and i was like he can hear He can hear that car two miles away and know that it's something he needs to bark about. 